and I'll just pretend that I like didn't think of this until it all sort of came together. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about narrative structure. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from shutdown Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, my co-host from Princeton, New Jersey, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Hey, Charles, doing well this uh, very warm uh, morning. Yes, it was tremendous here in D.C. yesterday. I took a little bit of a long walk, and it was it was fantastic. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's a it's a nice break uh, from the from the cold, but things are it's so hard to calibrate my sense of how things should be weather wise, because uh, the weather has been so crazy. Plus, like as cold as it's been in North America, I've got half my brain in you know in Turkey, and there's almost been no winter at all there it's been so warm hmm interesting so, well yeah. anyway. you know here in dc it is not just the weather that is uh, that is unusual we also have a government shutdown although those are becoming slightly <laughs> really? more why right. yes i don't think any of our listeners would be aware of that if i didn't mention it now yeah. Um, this means that after an incredibly busy week of various things including um getting ready for the shutdown i'm now going to have a bit of a forced vacation for the next couple of days at least um quite possibly without getting paid um unless they change that after they reopen the government uh yeah it's um it's not good we had to spend pretty much all of friday well not entirely all of it but a very big chunk of friday just getting ready um to uh to, for the shutdown, like that's just a thing that you have to do. You have to right. send out emails to all the people who are going, who, who you have things scheduled with, and tell them this might not happen, and we're going to have to reschedule X, Y, and Z. And it was, yeah. um, it's not great, and the uncertainty of it is particularly damaging because of the way in which we have to cancel some things, but maybe we don't have to cancel those, but we don't know how far out we have to cancel them. Right. Um, it wasn't, it, it wasn't great, and. Um, yeah, I, yeah. It's also it's obviously you know very annoying as an employee because um, you know ideally if there was going to have to be a shutdown, they would say, okay, you're getting five days unpaid vacation, and then you'd say, okay, five days, I'll go visit my parents, right. or you know, I'll uh, go to a warm place, go to a warm place, or you know, I'll like plan a nice five days of, you know, I'll do a little jolt to my exercise routine and, yeah. you know, run outside more or whatever. Uh, and you, you could just structure your, uh, your time and respond effectively. But as it is, they sort of keep you in this, uh, semi paralysis where you have to be on call and ready to go back to work. But, yeah. um, and obviously none of the opinions time. I express on this podcast have anything to do with the fact that I am also a federal employee. That is simply an additional thing. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yeah, um, so I was only using the proverbial you. Yes. The colloquial um, you. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah so. Well, but it, and, it, it was... and it gets it gets us also to the, um, you know, to the reason that the shutdown occurred, which is that that is, you know, this particular shutdown is sort of, is only an, um, sort of a dramatization of, um, the problems that Mattis, Secretary of Defense Mattis, was talking about, the Defense Department 
struggling under under the uh, regime of continuing resolutions, which is yeah. you know better than actually shutting down the government, um, but not much better because you still can't plan when you know if you have procurements um, and train you know poli- I mean finally they issued a new uh, national security strategy um, but which I heard good things about. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I haven't, I haven't yet read it, but it yeah, was... I haven't read it either, but I heard some summaries of it and yeah. it sounded very non-Trump from what I understand. Well, yeah, we should maybe talk offline about this, but. Wow. That was a weird edit. Let's get back to the show. <laughs> yeah. I may, um, or may not actually put an edit in there. I really love confusing our listener. Yeah. Anyway, let's get Mind to games. the topic of of this week's show. Um, well, it's a good, I think it's actually the, one of these no segue segues where. Well, that was kind of the point, but I felt we should still at least say that what our topic is. Exactly. This week we're talking about political character, as distinct from a sort of personal moral character, the way we often um, discuss it. We have been hearing, particularly from the right, uh, under the Bill Clinton years, that character matters. Character is very important in politicians, and so on and so forth. And yet, now they give us Donald Trump, who seems to have the worst personal character of any president going back quite some time. Um, and uh, this sort of leads us to the question of, all right, um, what is character when you're talking about a politician? Um, especially when you take into account that Donald Trump's character is terrible in many things, but one thing he does not do is drink. And he doesn't use any, as far as we know, he doesn't, and I believe he doesn't use drugs either. Uh, so, uh, this, so this is, so then we, we ask ourselves, being a drunkard could matter in politics because it can affect your performance, but not necessarily always. We know Lincoln famously saying that he wishes General Grant would give to his other generals, whatever it was he'd been drinking. Um, so, and, and Bill Clinton's affairs ended up paralyzing the government because other people were really willing to make so much hay out of them rather than because the affairs necessarily themselves should have shut down the government. Um, so then David, I want to then open this up. What do you think, where do you think personal character in, intersects with political character and how would you define political character? Uh, well, the, to go to your, just to address the way that you set this up, um, you know, in the, in the news of late, we've seen these references to, uh, shush money, you know, hush money that, uh, Trump allegedly paid to Stormy Daniels after an affair, uh, in order to keep her from revealing that, uh, news to the press. And in this bizarro world that we live in, uh, the reason that is, deemed newsworthy is that it shows despite what we have been led to believe that Trump actually cares about his reputation and that if he was willing to pay that money, then it shows that he is in fact someone who can be shamed and or alternatively blackmailed. He could be blackmailed. Exactly. That's where you're going. Yes. Right. Obviously uh, that's the implication there. And so, um, you know, to your point, what's just, again, in this strange 
upside down world we're in, <clears throat> as you said, you know, Clinton wasn't in a stupor. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a drunk who was in a haze and unable to make decisions because of his, uh, you know, his, um, sort of lack of abstemiousness. It wasn't that his lack of self-restraint sent him off a cliff and led him to not actually be able to execute his duties as president. As you said, it was that he put himself in a situation where uh, he created this crisis that then other people responded to in a way that crippled the government. And um, this has been politicized uh, I mean, it was politicized from the very moment where, and we've talked about this, where the moral, you know, as an, as a moral individual, you know, your response, not as a Democrat or a Republican to the, to that moment where you first learn, you know, the president is a womanizer, allegedly in some instances, even potentially a violent womanizer violently coercive with the um, Juanita Broderick uh, story. Um, and at a minimum, you know, a, a gross abuser of his power as an employer um, in engaging in the relationship with, uh, with Monica Lewinsky. And, you know, anybody's reaction as an ethical individual, uh, not necessarily as a citizen, you know, should be to say, this is not acceptable behavior. And, you know, I, I do care about this. Right. And that's part of the, we, we discussed this before that, um, chickens are coming home to roost in a certain way. It's not just a right wing talking point, um, that, the that the chickens are coming home to roost with Trump as a result of uh, the sort of blase dismissal of, um, Clinton's you know, not, not, it doesn't, is that, and there's, there are degrees of gradation here, but let's just call it predation, you know, predatory behavior. Um, uh, and here we are, um, where now, like both the individual's sense of self-presentation creates this question of whether he can or cannot be blackmailed and then the society and then there's the question of you know does the society care you know who's going to respond who's going to make a scandal and um we're just seeing this play out in real time with trump you know what the answers to these questions um are uh but but there's another issue to this there's another um manifestation of this question i think that i would that I've been thinking of over the last several days, which is um, part of the problem Trump poses to our democracy, to our republic, is that he represents the sort of absolute manifestation of traits that are essential in politicians, in, in the character of politicians. Politicians have to be willing to lie a little bit to make it um to make it very blunt they have to be willing to impose their semi-accurate characterization 
of personalities, events, policies themselves into the public discourse in a way that creates, you know, memes, that creates mind worms, that creates, um, you know, a, a, a coin with currency that people pass around, something that dominates the way people talk about an issue. You know, politicians, part of what they do, part of what they have to do is determine what the conversation is on whatever subject. And um, that that is inherent to political society. It's inherent to the fact that um, citizens don't have access to perfect, seamless, um, you know, information on all subjects. They're going off of, you know, there's an economy of information in the society and, you know, citizens are engaging in that um, economy, but they don't have access to all the information available. They rely on other people's characterizations of character, you know, people, events, policies. And so all politicians are going to engage in that um, practice. And what we need is for politicians to have some kind of internal, you know, some kind of internal compass of, okay, when am I going too far? What's, what's an acceptable characterization of this? And where does my, you know, where do I, where do we start to be ashamed of myself when it's veering off into the realm of, um, you know, ruthless lying and Trump. So it seems just does not have that right internal barrier. You know, he just, he takes this thing that is inherent in our society and just dials it up to 11. And, uh, you know, and we're seeing the results now where our institutions are being racked with this on, at least in our lifetimes, unprecedented, uh, strain. Mm. Does that, I mean, does that, uh, no, I think it, it makes sense to think of positive characteristics with no restraint becoming negative characteristics I mean, as the saying goes, the, the, the dose makes the poison. Exactly. Um, exactly. Or the solution uh, to pollution is dilution. Oh, well, you got more rhyming than I did. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so so that makes a, a lot of sense, um, especially since one of the descriptions of Trump is generally that he's just an unrestrained id, that he's right. just impulses without control. And right. political character... Like person, yeah. yes. Well, I was well, going to say that political character yeah. is, you know, your character as it reflects to your role in the political arena. And for Trump, maybe he doesn't have um, character issues when it comes to drinking, and maybe he does have character issues with regards to every single other thing someone can have character issues for. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the political arena. You know, how is that character manifested? And when it comes to the political arena, this is a problem because he doesn't understand why institutional barriers are there. He doesn't understand why he can't use the Justice Department as his own personal police force to arrest and try all of his political enemies for whatever reason he wants. Right. Right, exactly. I think um, what's interesting about calling him, you know, sort of unrestrained id is that, um, you know, the the id is in contrast to, at least in 
you know, the Freudian framework to the extent that I understand it or that anyone understands it. It, it is in contrast to the ego and the superego. And so my point is to highlight that it's not, um, you know, I'm not saying that there even can be a pol like the perfect politician is if Trump is, is a terrible politician, you know, sort of a terrible threat to our constitutional democracy. And, uh, he is a threat because he is unrestrained id, then you could come to the conclusion that the ideal politician for our constitutional democracy would be, you know, zero id, 100% superego. But my point is the opposite of that. It's that the dose makes the poison, but, you know, a little bit of, you know, for calling it id, but I'm calling it this kind of, um, this, this deceptiveness. I mean, unfortunately, it, you know, we're not angels. We don't have perfectly functioning minds, you know, that process information seamlessly, you know, we're not, uh, we have not yet escaped into the techno utopianism of, you know, the singularity when. Are you sure that's not what Trump has done with Twitter? That's probably what he's, <laughs> maybe he's an instrument. He's an instrument of the, of the singularity bringing us into such a state of disgust with our, with our ape ways, mm. our, our primitive ape democracy. Can't you picture him sitting down to tweet, trying to say reasonable, kind things and the singularity types for him and suddenly <laughs> before him, instead of seeing this reasoned, kind, politically appropriate tweet, he sees this nasty, nasty thing and he refuses to hit send. He refuses and refuses, but then some impulse unknown to him from somewhere forces him he watched to too much tweet. twilight zone as a yeah. kid it could be a night he could be in the worst nightmare of all of us right now yeah that would be really quite brave for a black mirror to go in that direction sympathy for the devil they should do uh -huh. that yeah but but anyway that is my that is my point i mean to the extent that i would present a theory of political character now it's not you know, i don't think this is actually that controversial it's um and it's basically machiavelli it's what machiavelli actually said you know people <clears throat> um you know understood machiavelli contemporarily as um you know as saying there should be no ethics there are no ethics um but that's obviously when you read the book, not his point. And I think he, he really was going off of, um, essentially my, you know, what I'm arguing here now that there's uh, you gotta be, you have to be able to use morality and use <clears throat> honesty as a, as a tool, as an instrumental tool for the health and power of your society. Right. Right. This is basic point. And so, I mean, to a certain extent, we talk about personal um, moral character. We find ourselves completely alone while our podcast host gets up to adjust something. We don't know what it is. What could it be, my fellow listeners? We'll learn in time. <laughs> With personal moral character, a lot of what we consider to be character is about self-restraint. It's the marshmallow test. You know, the can you sit here and wait 15 minutes to get two marshmallows instead of eating this marshmallow right now? 
It's can you put off the enjoyment of that second piece of cake? Can you go out and get that exercise? Can you stop yourself when you've had the correct number of drinks? We don't normally say that personal character is not having any drinks. I mean, there are obviously lots of people who do believe that, but it's not the general cultural position here that you should never have cake and never you know, have a glass of wine. It tends to be the position that character is, that when, is, that, is when you have the self-restraint to stop when it's necessary. And, it, and again, with um, you know, the issues Bill Clinton had with his personal character, he lacked self-restraint. He lacked the ability to stop himself from those impulses. And so when we talk about a political character, you're sort of taking that idea of self-restraint into your actions as a political actor, which is going to result in different things than it did when you were talking about your personal self-restraint for eating that extra slice of cake and, and so forth. Right. Or even sleeping in, the ability to go to bed at the right time and wake up at the right time. These are all things that require a lot of willpower and self-restraint. And so if you're talking about, if you're a senator or a president, what requires self-restraint from you that will yield long-term benefits to the republic rather than to the short-term whims of your political party? And right now with a shutdown, what we're seeing is, well, to a certain extent, it seems like they're unable to... Um, do anything that's good for them in either the short or the long term, uh, most people right now. Although one could argue that the Democrats' uh, role in the shutdown has been a sign of good political character because they're saying, look, you promised us DACA as a bill. You promised us that this would happen. You said you wanted to do this. And we knew this was our chance to try to get it done. And now you're suddenly pulling the rug out from under us. And we're not going to be you know, tricked or conned or blackmailed with the CHIP program, you put off renewing the CHIP program for four months, you don't get to do that and then suddenly attach it to this other bill to force us to vote for it. You know we would vote for a clean DACA bill, we'd vote for a clean um, a, a, a clean CHIP renewal. And so the question becomes, is it good political character or bad political character that the Democrats refuse to um back a compromise right now that essentially isn't a compromise, but just gives the Republicans everything they want. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, the question of, um, I mean, actually, you know, the, the broader question of being willing to play the game and being willing to, uh, shade the truth in order to create a political effect you know, what we're talking about here is uh, for the you know, it's an instrumentalization of ethics because you you have to understand how people will see a, a question and then pitch your actions to that understanding and and you know work within the framework of how people will see the question rather than what the truth of the matter is. And, um, that's the kind of conniving and calculating and, um, mucking about that, you know, that Machiavelli was talking about and, <laughs> you know, our, uh, 21st century Machiavelli McConnell, uh, he's very, he's very good at it or he has been so far. And the, but the question is, what is it all for? <laughs> what's, right. what's the point? You know, with Machiavelli, it was to create powerful, independent Italian republics that would throw off the oppression of, you know, France and Spain. Um, 
you know, uh, you know, the Hopsburgs and the, and the Bourbons, um, you know, he had a goal that most people could recognize as being a sort of fundamentally good one. Let's say, you know, most people think of patriotism, you know, as a, as a, as a good thing, although not everybody, obviously, um, well, patriotism is that category where the dose makes the poison because when it gets too far, right. it turns into nationalism. Like that's essentially exactly. Exactly. the degraded form of patriotism. Exactly. Exactly. But then, so anyway, the question now is again, we're like, so what's the point of, you know, what, why does Mitch McConnell wield this power? What is his goal? Um, what is his end game? You know, and that gets you to this question of like, how can using insurance for children health insurance for children, how can using that as a bargaining chip and a wedge, how can that be in pursuit of an end game that anyone can accept? You know, what is, how, how, where do you, how do you get to, you know, T plus 10 or whatever? I mean, what, what, you know, after whatever his game, uh, is after that ends, after that process ends, you know, the, the situation at, you know, that we find ourselves in after his, his plans come to fruition, you know, where are we and why do we want to be there? <laughs> and, and so thinking about it in those terms, you know, I, I find, um, the broader blame question, uh, which we may not want to get into the sort of the TikTok of how the negotiations failed over the um, over the budget, since that, that would take us a little bit into the weeds away from our broader question of character. But, um, you know, I would propose maybe just putting it in, in parentheses, but on this question of like, what is it for? You know, if you're, if, if political character means, um, uh, playing a dirty game because you have to get a little bit of dirt on you in order to, achieve your goal in this world where we're not perfect seamless, you know, perfect automatons seamlessly processing infinite information about the way the world works. You know, you, you have to use well-crafted little, uh, you know, little phrases like, uh, crooked Hillary and the wall, right? Like these things that get people motivated um, but you know, the question is, do you use them for good or ill? And, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's all I think we need to say for the question of, of blame on the, on the government shutdown. Um, uh, you know, you may, you may want to go more into particulars, but that would be I think I've said about the appropriate amount for my, for, for my level of understanding of the issue, which is, you know, the, 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 they, they're, they're, they, the Republicans have, you know, dodged both the DACA and chip fixes for a long time. And what, and, and that sort of dishonesty from them, if you will, is an issue here because, all right, you said you want chip, you said you want these DACA reforms. Well, then let's just do them. Um, but they're like, well, we'd rather chip be attached to something we know you don't want to vote for so we can blame you for not voting for chip stuff. Like that's, Right. Pretty cynical and pretty awful. And yeah, I don't I don't know that I know enough about a lot of these specific negotiations and what they're really talking about. 
the extent of my understanding is largely that they'll think they have some sort of deal coming along with Trump and then Trump will completely change his mind the next time they talk to him because it's clear somebody else got to him and told him something. And because Trump always believes the last thing he was told, that that's how this happens. Um, right. And that, and that gets mm -hmm. us back, I think, to this, you know, to the character question is we have this um, <laughs> this president who. Uh, to the extent that he's shown a certain amount of skill at times in setting up, a, you know, setting up a play and sticking to the play. You know, he's demonstrated that at times, um, but this is not one of those times. <laughs> this, this does seem to be uh, a moment in which, I mean, unless you're, view of his end, unless your view of his sort of four-dimensional chess, you know, his, his long game is actually just the erosion of most of our governing norms in American society. Because here we are today, where in his demand for obedience, you know, because he sees himself as a, as a king with a personal army, you know, the, where government workers are his personal servants and enforcers rather than you know the servant who presides over the american government as it is legally authorized to function um you know he's demanding now that the um or i, I see it's allegedly you know it's reported he's allegedly demanding that um, the senate scrap the filibuster in order to get this uh budget passed and again it's like <laughs> What is the end state here? It's now it really does appear to be whatever other instances of long-term thinking and, uh, you know, marshmallow test passing uh, that Trump has managed to, uh, to display. This is not one of those moments and it's just instant gratification. I need to win this. I want to win it now. And I want to, and the terms of the game are what my last most hardcore hardline advisor, you know, told me they were, you know, and Steve, and Stephen Miller, I guess we don't, we probably don't think he's actually listening much to, to sessions, but maybe, um, I mean, there is that wing and part of, you know, I keep getting pulled back into the, into the blame question, but, you know, part of the problem with, uh, <laughs> with this is that the Republicans are split between people who, you know, they, they've taken a hostage. And half of them want to free the hostage and half of them actually want to kill the hostage. You know, they don't want the thing that they can get in exchange for the hostage. They, they took the hostage in order to kill the hostage. And that's, and that is definitely the case with immigration, hmm. um, where, you know, Steve King, Tom Cotton, you know, they don't want these, they don't want those people in the country and they don't want people like them in the country. And so they, they took the hostage in order to kill it. And how can you negotiate with someone who's like, you know, I have this person in my power. You're going to make promises to me and then I'm going to kill the person. <laughs> it's like, right. that's not how it's supposed to work. And it's, it only sort of works because, you know, other Republicans want a negotiation. They want the process. And some Republicans are like, I want this hostage. You know, I want to release the hostage right now. And, they can't figure out their own position as a party on this, on 
particularly the question of immigration. Um, and so we're in this, we're in this mess. Um, but when it comes to, again, character, it's like, what is this all for? Um, I would, I would posit again that, yeah, we're in this fallen world. We got to get dirty in order to play the game of politics. So the nature of political character is not purity and innocence. Um, it's getting into the mud, but it's getting into the mud in order to achieve a goal. And, um, and that goal should be something other than simply holding power and, and wielding power over other people. And then the question, okay, what is the, you know, how can we, how can we see clearly and admit to ourselves what the goal seems to be? And that's where things are, that's where things are getting pretty confusing and pretty ugly in America where you have, um, you know, you know, a lot of Republicans who are not white nationalists, but then others who, whose policies don't really make sense unless they are, mm. you know, regardless of what they call themselves. Well, and you, it's kind of been strange how increasingly explicit it's becoming on like Fox news. Right. Where I, So Tucker Carlson apparently did a segment the other day where he just asked, well, how many tech businesses are run by Hispanic people? Oh yeah, exactly. And to which everybody's like, well, if you'd bother to do any research, here's a list. Right, um, right. It's like when you ask these questions, there are answers to these questions. Yes, you you it's could just, just the, look them up. You don't have to. The problem with yeah. like there are a lot of rhetorical questions where the point is that you assume the other person is getting to the same answer you are when you ask the rhetorical question, but sometimes there's an actual answer to the question. Right, you could have just looked it up. Yeah. So the age of yes, but, but, that but you reach you raise an interesting point, which is. Um, once again, as we said, you need, it's not that you shouldn't have some of these impulses at all, but that you need self-restraint for them because we are crippled by both overly short-term thinking and overly long-term thinking. One of the elements of overly long-term thinking that has been a problem, I think, if you go back to around the time of the 2004 election, everybody was talking about, and this is the first since this is a, you know, I wasn't, I was politically aware prior to going to college, but, you know, it obviously kicks up into another gear once you're once you're an adult. Um, but they were talking about Karl Rove's vision of a permanent governing majority for the Republicans. Right. And so suddenly it didn't become well, we're going to win the next election or we're going to set ourselves up for the moderate term. It was we're going to take over forever. It's going to be us forever. And once the once they had such an amazing um, goal to work for this work having power forever means our vision will be dominant forever and as right. a result anything is worth it to achieve that goal we'll take a lot of other knocks and destroy a lot of other things because our goal is so important it's a lot like when the french revolution happened and they started to put ideals into a lot of the wars that they were starting to lead at least early on where, you know, it's not, oh, we're not just starting a war because we're going to take this one piece of land. We're going to make a careful calculation about um, whether it's worth it to us to try to steal these resources. It's no, you know, we have this vision of humanity and we're going to have these, you know, great wars that will, as time would eventually go on, they would add things like we're going to make the world safe for democracy. This is the war to end all wars. And that is such a noble goal that you can do anything to achieve it. And once you start doing anything to achieve your goal, compromise starts to become difficult, if not impossible. 
and it just drags on and causes so much damage and destruction because you can't see where you are anymore. You're just looking at this far-off goal and saying it's so valuable that anything is worth it. Uh, indeed. And again, it's the, you know, the, the need of the matter is to be able to step back as a, um, you know, I, I, what I'm saying in, involves a certain paradox because if, uh, if people didn't need to be lied to a little bit, then we would be in a much better place. I mean, it would it'd be simpler. Politics would be a lot simpler. You know, if people, if people refused to be lied to and could not be lied to, then, uh, politics would be, would be much, much simpler. Um, as it is, we live in this world that I described, um, of imperfect information, um, imperfect access to information, imperfect logic. You know, that not all people are able to, to see through the deceptions, um, as, as another part of it for whatever combination of reasons. Um, and so, um, you know, my, the main thing I want to say when you were talking about, um, idealism and international relations, we can call it that, is, would just, was just to push back on the matter of, on the question of when those discourses emerged were they actually determinative of policy or did they simply uh, accompany the policy? So, you know, in the age of the absolute kings who were making, you know, you, you set up a history of, you know, the before time when empires just like calculated how many resources they would expend to seize a particular amount of resources in, in you know, sort of expend resources to, to seize productive capacity. Um, well, they had an ideology as well. And it was just, it was the divine right of Kings and that worked well enough for that time. And then, you know, the ideology, uh, was no longer compelling to people. And so it, it changed over time and you had sort of this, you know, bourgeois. Well, um, interest is one of only three reasons people <laughs> tend to start wars. Let us not forget fear and honor. Fear and well. honor. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, you know, you, but you, so pushing back, uh, that's sort of the easy way to push back, um, on the characterization you made of, um, you know, of how international relations work. Um, but, you know, the thing is that the citizens are listening. You know, here we are in the 21st century. Citizens do listen to the ideology and they think about it and they're motivated by it. And that shapes what is possible and what those end states can be. Uh, you know, what the end state that the, the political leaders we are evaluating are pushing for. And um, whatever they, you know, whether they really believe these ideologies, if you're going to be cynical about it uh, or not, you know, people believe the ideologies. And, um, as a result, uh, that creates pressures and it creates constraints on what those end states, um, can be. And so when we are, again, when we're, you know, evaluating, uh, 
character in politics and character of political leaders, I think you have to acknowledge that we are in this, you know, we're in the dirt, we're going to be dirty. Um, but you have to maintain the, the tension to, to force yourself to try to see the end state that those leaders are moving towards, that their policies would, would end up getting, you know, bringing us uh, into, you know, or the future they would, the, pol- their pol- the policies they describe would bring about and, um, and, you know, and strive for information, you know, acknowledging that we don't have perfect information, that people don't make decisions based on uh, necessarily all that much information at all. Um, but nevertheless, for ourselves to, to strive to understand and to explain with as much information, as much context as possible, um, what those, what those end states will be. And again, um, to, you know, to bring it into the present day, it's like, let's, let's just set aside, uh, let us attempt to set aside the conventional thinking and the bromides and sort of present, you know, contemporary, uh, sort of chatter about immigration, for example. It's like, what is the actual end state we want for our country? What kind of country do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want to live in? It doesn't have to be one where, like, I don't think we should be, I don't think people, uh, are going to be forced into a position of just giving up the idea of a nation or giving up citizenship, you know, the concept of citizenship. But, you know, the idea that, like, to be American is to be someone whose grandparents were American is just so antithetical to the way our country actually works. So, um, yeah, I'm getting, I'm, I focus on this point because I, I think it's important and it's, and it, and it redounds to character both as a process and as a, um, um, you know, character is a question of how you go about engaging in politics and character as a, um, sort of full evaluation of a, of a person. And, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling a bit. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, as you said, immigration is a lot about what your end goal is. And there's a lot of maneuvering that occurs along the way because part of what I think is poor political character is when people try to make a simplistic argument that, well, they're here illegally, therefore legally they can't be here, therefore they have to be deported, which is not how we really treat any other offense. Um, You don't really, you don't really say, oh, well, you know, you're not supposed to shoplift and this person shoplifted, so we should cut his hand off. I mean, there (laughs) were people who who thought that way and we decided that was barbaric and wrong. Right. Um, there's a proper punishment for these offenses, and it might not necessarily be deportation. And then people will say, yes, but the law is that they shouldn't be here. We don't have a problem with immigration. We have a problem with illegal immigration. It's against the law. We have to correct the law. They act like, like their big concern is about the law, and respect for law isn't being followed. But we possess the ability to make it legal as opposed to illegal. We can just do that. And when you right. mention that to them, well, suddenly they have other things they want to start talking about. And suddenly they do the Tom Cotton thing where they even want to restrict legal immigration. And when exactly. they want to restrict legal immigration, you start hearing the arguments come out and they get more and more explicitly racist. 
Yeah. I mean, it's there've there've been some like when you see what some of the, some of the excerpts from Fox News and what they've been saying these days with the immigration stuff, it's kind of frightening that they're willing to just openly say some of this. That they're willing yeah. to say, well, maybe Hispanic people don't run interesting tech businesses because there's something wrong with them, or you know, you've got so yeah. many Hispanic people, you've effectively moved the border north. And right. at that point, you're like, oh, yeah, heavens forfend we should ever have people speaking Spanish in places like Los Angeles and San Diego <laughs> and New Mexico. Right. Like it's, it's, right. I mean, yeah. New, New Mexico, you you drop the thread there because that is English. But um, right. I mean, New. But I mean, it's, it's literally new, called New, new what? Mexico. It's New Mexico, yes. right? Yeah. No, so I get your point there, but. No, I mean El Paso would have been right. A All right, better, you know, San Antonio. I just thought Santa the fact Florida. that Mexico was in the name was important, but yeah, yeah, no. But I mean, the point is that, um, yeah, actually, this is a little bit of a parenthetical aside, but you know, there's um, this genre of map that um, reimagines the United States as fifty states of it sort of de gerrymanders hmm. the entire you know, United States, and it imagines, you know, uh, the primary goal being states of equal population, and then um, where it gets interesting is this, is sense to which it presents um, an idea of what a community of interest is, you know, these two balancing concerns of how to make a, you know, like a congressional district or a state uh, senate or, you know, state house district. Uh, where you balance these two concerns, well, I guess three concerns of, you know, compactness, uh, size, population size, and, um, you know, and actually having a community of interest. And um, one of them that I saw recently was really interesting because it gave names to these states that Mm. were basically all geographical or um, based on Native American populations you know, in those areas. And it really highlighted the point of like, you know, what, it's like, what are we as a country? What, what, what was here? What are we, what are we honoring and living with and preserving and continuing into the future with the decisions we're making now? Um, you know, a lot of Native American place names were good enough for the colonists who just repeated them and used them um, for towns and rivers and whatever else. Um, not universally, <clears throat> obviously. They you know, gave their own names to all sorts of things. Especially, you know, the, the, um, Eddie Izzard has a good bit on this of, you know, what are the odds? You know, the, the pilgrims that get in a the boat, they launch from Plymouth, and they land in Plymouth. <laughs> right. You know, what are the odds of that? Um, yeah, but um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, so going back to also to uh, you know you you made a good quip about um, interest and honor, and and here we have fear. And the thing that I fundamentally find so sad about the worldview of people like Senator Cotton and Steve King, like is Steve the, King, who said you can't. Raise, have a civilization where you're raising other people's babies. Other people's babies. Because if you have pride in your civilization and you are not afraid that, in fact, you are lying to yourself. I mean, Steve King actually thinks that American civilization is a lie. 
he obviously thinks this because I think that American civilization is, in fact, superior and compelling and attractive, and that pe other people's children come here and want to be Americans. They make themselves Americans in the ways that matter. You know, maybe they speak with an accent, but, you know, most of them, they, they learn English, right? They don't, shouldn't have to forget their own languages, but they come here, they learn what it means to be an American, and they become Americans and enrich us because we actually do have something to sell. You know, they do right. want to buy what we're selling. And Steve King seems to think that the only way to, you know, sell American, um, you know, culture, civilization is to lie about it, you know, to, to impose it on your own biological children, you know, that no one else will willingly adopt it. And uh, I just find that so pathetic and, un and unpatriotic and sad and fearful. It's just, it's just awful. I mean, I've, I've gotten myself worked up. Um, but, uh, but that's fundamentally the issue here is, you know, people want to come to this country. They don't want to come here, not all of them, you know, to just like take, um, you know, in, in a, in a legal regime that would actually identify people who are coming here to exploit us, like, you know, global oligarchs who are here just to take advantage of our legal systems to launder money that they can't protect in their own broken societies. Um, you know, find those people, keep them out. Uh, but you know, good, decent people who want to come here and work and raise families, you know, that's what has made this country what it is. Yeah, but you have to agree with that vision and that version of America. And we've had a concerted effort on the part of one of the political parties and their mouthpieces over the last couple of decades to tear down that vision of America, to yeah. say that that's not what we are and that's not how we do things that, I mean, it used to be sort of, it used to be subtler in terms of what they were, um, what they were hinting at. And now they're sort of openly using ethnicity as, yeah. as a part of that. It used to just be, well, there's an American culture and American thing and letting too many people in from outside who don't share that culture. Well, culturally that's a problem. And now they're just using ethnicities just yeah. openly. Well, that's the thing is you know, Republicans need to, I mean, decent Republicans, people with you know, Republican leaders with character need to, need to recognize that they are at the point of, I mean, whatever you think about, the core values of like small government and pro-business uh, policies. They're at the point of achieving those policies with the, with an through an unholy alliance with bad people. And the Democrats were in this position in the mid 20th century. And they said, we're going to lose the bad people. They're not going to be Democrats anymore. You know, we're going to push through the Voting Rights Act, and after that, we're going to lose the racists. And they lost the racists, and the racists are now, you know, the descendants of the racists um, have now, you know, led to this position where Republicans are struggling over the soul of their party. And um, hopefully, you know, people like uh, Mitt Romney, you know, this is the promise that Mitt Romney offers, is to say... Um, we just can't do this anymore. We can't 
we, we, it, you know, we, we recognize that this cannot continue and we either have to subjugate the racists within our party and take back control of our party from them or create a new party. You know, the, 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 the Republican party is dead, gone the way of the Whigs as glorious as its past was. Um, and you know, the new party is the conservative party and we're not, you know, we're not nativists. We're just pro-business, small government. Um, but exile the white nationalists, lead a split from that. And I think it'd take a lot of, you know, blue dog Democrats, but then, I mean, there could be, a, there could be a real realignment in this country. Hmm. Um, but that would take a lot of character. political character. And honor the type exactly the the sort of political character. Is an interesting contrast here is you had Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and John McCain showing political character on the healthcare bill where they said, "Look, there are processes you have to follow to get our votes along with us." And we wanted this Obamacare repeal too, but we're not gonna. When, this is what you're asking us to do is a violation of the principles that we think are important in the long term. Yeah. But then they did exactly the same thing with a tax bill and suddenly everyone was for it. Yeah. And so it, I mean that's that was Including an issue like of, a soft repeal of uh of right. the ACA. They yeah, had which, enough which political character to say no once yeah. but not twice. Yeah. And and that was rough. Um yeah, so I mean just to sort of bring it all around, um I would say that we're working with a definition of political character that we've come up with which is um, when you have the self-restraint and willingness to deny your id to make choices that are in the long-term interest of your political, um, be it a re your political arena, your political um, division, whatever it is your your country is that you're viewing it, that is you know what you're trying to improve. When you're willing to use self-restraint to achieve those goals rather than to go for short-term fixes or for overly ideological long-term fixes that will do great damage to the structures of your country um, just to get the goal that you want. That's not a great, that's uh, <laughs> not a no, great, yeah. uh, there's not a great formulation. You know what, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll edit in later a much better, <laughs> more concisely worded version. That'd be great. Um, but, yeah, the, the political yeah. definition we're working with is hard break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be... Well, welcome back to, yeah. but speaking of self-restraint and so forth, I need to get running. So yep. we're going to call yeah. this episode.